our American stories and of all the stories we tell here, some of our very favorites are about the men and women who serve our nation in uniform. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear the story of Staff Sergeant Sal Junta, who explained how a t-shirt started him down a path to becoming the first living American to earn a Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. And by the way, like all heroes, Sergeant Junta is deeply uncomfortable with the term hero. And, well, as he said it, I'm only mediocre, I'm average. And that's something, that humility, is something we hear over and over again from our best, the very best our nation has to offer. For many of our veterans, their time in uniform, both in peace and war, has shaped much of their adult lives. But for the overwhelming majority, their time in uniform is just a part of their lives. They will transition back to civilian life. What happens then? Today we're joined by Jonathan McConnell, a Marine combat veteran who is now president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. To discuss just this topic, we were introduced to Jonathan by reading his excellent piece in The Federalist, quote, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. You bet. Jonathan, before we start, we like to get to know people, who they are, where they're from. Talk a little about your childhood, your parents, where you grew up, your first job, Give us a sense and give our audience a sense of who you are. Well, I grew up in Alabama, uh, down in Mobile. My parents were high school sweethearts and then um, uh, got married and had my sister and I. It's just the two of us. I'm the youngest or the baby of the family and uh, went to grew up, went to Auburn University for undergraduate. And then after uh, graduating in uh, three years from there, I, it was right during the time of September 11th or uh, just following September 11th. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. Um, Decided to, elected to pursue being an officer, and uh, went through and became an infantry officer. And then, um, you know, it, at that point, uh, lived a storied career. I mean, I you know deployed twice to Iraq. First time on the outskirts of Fallujah, and the second time um, right there on the uh, Syrian border uh, near Al Qaim. Um, had two completely different deployments. Uh, the first one was uh, much more kinetic. Uh, our battalion lost 18 Marines, um, and then uh, came back for the second deployment just six months later. And uh, our entire battalion, there was not a single Marine that fired a shot. Uh, so it, that was during the surge, and or just post-surge, and, and you're looking at the success of that uh, that time period and, and the success that the Marines had there in the Al-Anbar province, I, I think it uh, speaks volumes. Two weeks after getting back from Iraq, I, I drove through the night or checked out of the Marine Corps in two weeks, which I often say is my probably one of my greatest accomplishments in life, and then uh, drove through the night and started law school the next day at the University of Alabama. Um, that was definitely an interesting experience just because uh, the transition was, was interesting. Uh, going from two weeks earlier, having been in Iraq, even though it wasn't a kinetic deployment, uh, still was definitely interesting. Uh, I would but, say that's a heck of a transition uh, compared to going from college to law school. Yours is slightly uh, more radical in, it, in its differences. By the way, you experienced the fruits of the surge, one of the most underreported and more remarkable achievements in combat history that is now not only not remembered, no one even knows about it. Correct. Yeah, it, it was it was truly amazing to watch it go from, you know, I think our you, know, you look at our worst day, you know, maybe nine 
significant activities, uh, whether it's being taking mortar fire, IED strikes, uh, small arms fire, to zero. Uh, you know, and, and really that was even in areas um, that wasn't just because we it was six months later and several hundred clicks to the west. That was right outside of Fallujah, right outside of Ramadi. Um, that was because of the surge, and I think it was highly effective. Yep, highly effective, and I think at that point, the media had checked out of the war, Americans had, and regrettably, the soldiers hadn't, and they were winning. And we, right. know, we know that, and sadly, I know that story, because we talk to soldiers here on this show, and we don't consider ourselves a part of the media. That's why we call ourselves Our American Stories. We let the folks tell the stories, and we just sort of get out of the way. Tell me why you decided to join the Marine Corps, though, right out of Auburn, and how many other of your peers responded to 9-11 by graduating from a big, big state university and saying, heck, I think I want to join not only the military, but, well, the branch of service that would most likely see combat in a really dangerous place. You know, a lot of it just was a call to serve that I think so many military-age males have, uh, you know, in the United States. I, I almost went to the Naval Academy. I'd pursued that route until I went and visited it one summer, and I was just like, uh, my sister actually was at Auburn at the time, and uh, I spent, during the week, I went and visited the Naval Academy and saw the, you know, the regime there and, and how rigorous it was and structured it was, and then my sister, afraid of me joining the military, uh, basically told all of her sorority sisters, hey, my brother's uh, thinking about going to the Naval Academy or he's considering Auburn. Let's show him a good time. And uh, I drowned in, you know, 18, 19-year-old, you know, girls who were, you know, like, hey, Jonathan, come to Auburn. It's great. You know, and just was spoiled. And I, at that point, never looked back and was like, there's no way in the world I would go to the Naval Academy now. Right. Um, probably one of the funniest experiences of my life. But uh, we had a great time. Went to, you know, a football game, obviously, and then, um, you know, had a great weekend. And at that point, I uh, decided to go to Auburn. You know, we weren't at war then. That was back in, in 1998, 1999. Um, and then I started in the fall of 2000. And then, you know, uh, it always felt like, you know, I'm missing out. And I remember sitting down with one of my Sunday school teachers who was, a, you know, a, just a mentor of mine, and he said, Jonathan, you know, what do you regret in life? And I was like, well, at this point, I don't regret anything. And I was like, well, you know, Rich, what do you regret? And he was like, I'm 55 years old. I regret not serving my country. And this is actually was the weeks after September 11th. He was like, I tried to join and go and, you know, see if they needed a doctor. And he was like, you know, they, they didn't. They kind of laughed me out of the room. And he was like, but, you know, he's like, now, especially after September 11th, that's, uh, you know, something that's heavy on my heart. And, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, I, I feel that too. Um, and, you know, and so at, at that point, I, I joined. Um, you know, a peer group had a few friends that, you know, I went to church with at uh, Auburn that did go on and, you know, one, um, you know, was flying uh, fast movers for the Navy, and a few that, that did end up serving, but there were not very many. Well, when we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into your life in the Marines, how the Marines are different than the other branches, not better, not worse, but how they're different, and then we're going to get into the transition away from military life and into civilian life, the real guts and the heart of your work in the Federalist piece, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, Jonathan's story, when we come back.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell, whose terrific piece in The Federalist called A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life can be found. Google it, uh, The Federalist, and put in Combat Veteran's Transition. It'll pop up. You won't take your eyes off it. And uh, Jonathan, before we dig into the piece, what was it about the Marine Corps that drew you in as opposed to the other branches? And how is the Marine Corps, in your mind, different? And again, not better, not worse, but how is it different? You, you know, I think it's, we're a smaller group. Uh, we're, we're more, uh, I think we're allowed to be very selective, but also, too, I mean, I, I think it's amusing. I, I'm five foot ten. Uh, I'm very tall for the Marine Corps. Uh, I think that the Marines produce... You know, we have a reputation of being harder or being, you know, uh, more rigorous uh, at boot camp. And whether that's true or not, I, you know, I've never been to Army boot camp. I've never been to the Navy's boot camp. Um, but I, I think that we produce a fighter, you know, the esprit de corps, just a tenacity that's not often duplicated. Uh, we can be a little bit more selective with our physical fitness standards uh, because of our lower numbers that we have to achieve. But two, you know, I talk about the height. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not a tall guy, if, especially, you know, when I went to high school, I was a much shorter guy than I am now. And, and you know, I was a giant for the Marine Corps. You look at people that are, um, I think it often, you have uh, a lot smaller people in the Marine Corps because they're feisty and they, you know, may have been picked on a lot in high school and, and they're not going to let that happen anymore. They're going to join the Marine Corps. And, and that tenacity and that, uh, you know, that uh, the, the bulldog mindset is definitely there in the Marine Corps. And it's, it's something that, uh, you see, even after the Marine Corps, uh, just people with an edge on them that uh, you know that are out there that you know to win. Yep. And tell us now, give us a story or two setting up this exit from the military. I think we got to understand some of the things you you saw and experienced, Jonathan, as a Marine infantry officer, uh, and your frequent deployments to Iraq. Tell us a bit about just a couple of your overseas experiences. You know, to me, I often say it's the greatest honor I've ever had in my life, you know, to this point. Um, I, I say that cautiously because my, my wife is, uh, is, we are expecting our first child, a boy, uh, in about two months. Uh, so I have to say that extremely cautiously, and I think that will overtake as the greatest honor I've ever had. But, you know, leading American sons into battle, uh, being able to see what these young Marines will do, you know, 18, or actually 17 to 22-year-old kids, men who are out there and who will literally give their life for the Marine on their right or left. You know, I've watched, um, you know, where Marines have literally we start taking small small arms fire and Marines just all of a sudden it's the immediate actions that step in. And you have once, you know, one fire team starts laying down a base of fire while the other two fire teams start maneuvering and you execute fire maneuver where they start maneuvering towards gunfire that just came in their direction. It's the greatest honor in the entire world to see something like that, to lead Marines who are so selfless and who only care about, you know, the, the, the Marine on their right and their left. And uh, to me, that that's the greatest honor I've ever had, um, you know, to this point. And I, I think that it, it's just chilling to even think about, you know, what those guys do and, and how selfless they are. You look at them now, and, and we, we come back into society that we're in now that we're not exactly so selfless. You know, we're uh, it, it's an interesting society, and I think that's why so many guys have trouble adapting. Yeah, I mean, they go from this remarkable teamwork, this remarkable sense of camaraderie, and sacrificial love, let's, let's call it what it is, because in the end, it, they're experiencing this beautiful thing called sacrificial love, and then they get right back out into the real world, and my goodness, a lot more selfishness, a lot more uh, uh, egocentric and centered on the individual. Let's dig into your piece in The Federalist about the transition back into civilian life. You start with these great lines, and I'm going to read them to you. 
Two weeks after returning from Iraq in 2009, I was sitting in school, opting to use the GI Bill to earn my law degree. And there I sat, alongside 23-year-olds who spent the last four years partying, sometimes studying, and going to football games. I spent the last four years of my life as a Marine infantry officer. Too many veterans face the same situation. They come home from fighting a war that has been all but forgotten. 22-year-old veterans return stateside from war with the life experience of a 42-year-old. Then they go to college and sit next to 18-year-old drama queens they simply can't relate to. They haven't seen the last X number of seasons of whatever is popular on TV. They're probably wearing the same clothes they wore in high school and could relate better with an 80-year-old Korean War veteran than any college freshman. Talk about that. You know, I, I think I was lucky. Uh, you know, I'm sitting next to a 23-year-old college kid who's at least gotten some of the party out of his system um, and who at least knows they're in a professional school. But, but think about that, that 22-year-old or that 23-year-old who's now sitting next to that 18-year-old. You know, it, it's, there's a reason that, you know, we've almost lost half the Marines from our battalion, or we lost 18 Marines in Iraq. We've almost lost half that many to suicide since we've come back. And it's because you try to get them to transition and understand um, you know, and adapt and assimilate into, you know, the college culture, and and they just can't. Um, you know, they, they we're lost on the social spectrum because we're not going to be able to tell you what happened in the season of office space or office, the office. You know, um, I, I haven't watched TV in years, um, and most of these Marines missed every series that came out. And, you know, and we're still wearing the same stuff from high school because, one, it you know, probably doesn't fit, but I know that every time I deployed and when I came back, um, my clothes, you know, you're like, what happened to my clothes? I thought I stored them here. And you come back and, you know, maybe that box got lost or something like that. And, you know, and so we are kind of SOL at that point. Um, It it is an interesting transition time. And you also note in the piece that the combat veterans' bodies have been in fight or flight mode for months, if not years, and that the production of cortisol in particular which the body produces in, in anxiety, is helpful in these short-term fights. But as you put it, it stays there for long, long periods of time. And people experience anxiety, depression, and sleep problems as a result of this. And by the way, extended exposure to cortisol kills short-term memory and also makes concentration difficult. So talk about the actual combat experience, how it changes you physically, because um, I don't think people are aware of this, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting reading the science of it, you know, in, in going through and, and figuring out. I mean, it took me years to figure out what had happened to my body or what was under, you know, what I understood that had happened to my body. You know, when you're out outside the wire, when you're when you leave the battalion area and you're out on patrol, I mean, you may be outside of the wire for three, four or five days, maybe even a week. And you don't go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, you, you may have to, if you're hydrating properly, yeah, you're, you're probably going to urinate some. Um, but you, you don't, um, you know, fully go to the bathroom or anything like that. And, um, you know, and then when you, as soon as you step inside the wire, I mean, there's a process. You go through and you clear your weapon and you, um, you know, you're, if you're on a mounted patrol, you're dismounting the, we- the vehicles and, and get everything prepped. But literally, as soon as you step inside the wire, it hits you, and your body it starts releasing that serotonin, which relaxes you. And at that point, you're like, "Man, I've got to go to the bathroom." Mm-hmm. And and you'll you'll see an entire unit, a squad, um, you know, that's just like everybody's looking at each other, like, "Hey, we're going to park the vehicles," and then we're all running to the head. And uh, you know, and that's just part of it. It's the relaxation. You know, the the fight or flight mode when you've got that serotonin that's pumping through your veins, and you're out on patrol. You're not going to the bathroom, but you're also hyper vigilant. You're you were 
keenly aware of everything going on because your body is pushing all the oxygen up to your brain so that you can do that, so that you can be more aware because you're in that fight-or-flight mode. You're in survival mode, and your body is instinctually is preparing your, you know, putting all the, uh, the, the oxygen to your brain and to your muscles uh, that are going to be used, not to the digestive system, which at that point is not necessary for survival. And you also point out the hypervigilance that, that is a, almost a habit, the way you're scanning rooms for threats, the way you're looking at almost everything when you're in combat. Well, suddenly you're in law school, and that hypervigilance, that habit, it's got to be off-putting now for you. And how do you explain that to anybody, Jonathan? You've got about a minute here. We're going to continue on the other side. But talk about that, the habits you pick up that were helpful as a Marine, which are now, well, maybe not so helpful in a classroom or on a date. Yeah, they don't help much on the date. Uh, they don't help much on in the classroom. And to be totally honest, I wasn't very social. I mean, I, you know, like I had friends and everybody was generally nice to me. Um, but, you know, like uh, I had trouble relating to people or even talking to people a lot of times. And, and so, yeah, you sit in the back of the classroom or you sit in a certain area. You know the, the seat that you're going to have in that classroom that's going to either make you get out of there quickly or keep anybody from having, you know, being behind you. Assigned seating uh, in the classroom would always drive me nuts. You know, but nothing you can do about that usually. Nothing you can do. And by the way, I can't tell you how many people, Jonathan, you know, I, I routinely would go to Walter Reed when I was living in Washington. And, and then when friends of mine would meet soldiers, particularly soldiers who'd been through stressful experiences, they'd always say to me, what should I say? What should I say? And by the way, it, it's not their fault. They don't know what to say. And it, very often they're not equipped to hear what a soldier might have to tell them anyway. And when we come back, Jonathan, we're going to talk about those things and so much more. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell, and we're looking inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jonathan McConnell's story, when we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell and his piece in The Federalist, A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life. And after serving in Iraq, and my goodness, under the toughest combat circumstances in Fallujah, uh, a not good place to be in Iraq at the time that Jonathan was serving there. And then to, well, not quite as stressful in a, a circumstance, but always stressful in the end when you're overseas and people are potentially going to shoot at you at any given time. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. I wanted to pick up where we left off. Tell us a bit about insomnia and tinnitus, which, as you say, is a ringing in the ears on steroids. Talk about those two things. Yeah, so, um, 
you know, tinnitus is a, a slight ringing of the ears that, you know, sometimes you can hear, uh, and then sometimes it gets so loud that you can't focus on anything else. Um, and, you know, a lot of times that, that happens at night. Um, it, it exacerbates that lonely feeling that you have uh, and that no one else, uh, you know, can connect with you, mainly because you're, you're the only one who hears it. Um, it that can be uh, an extremely frustrating feeling uh, sometimes, and, and it's... Um, but you know, it's just—it's one of those things that you have to manage. Uh, once you realize that that's what's going on, that you can, you know, w- when I finally figured out that hey, no one else hears this, or I, I realize no one else hears it, but okay, hey, um, this is the tinnitus, and you breathe deeply, and you make sure you keep getting oxygen to the brain instead of stopping to think, you know, stopping and stop breathing, and you know, or slowing down your breathing. You overbreathe, uh, and you um, take deep breaths, and just you know, be- become cognizant of what's going on, and that helps you to you know, more quickly cope with it or deal with it and just saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this, but I'm experiencing this because, you know, hey, I serve my country and, and no one else can relate to this right now or at least no one else that's in the room with me right now. And, you know, that's okay. It's not, it's not a big deal. But, you know, maybe even step out and try to get somewhere quiet where you're by yourself because there's fewer things that are more annoying if someone tries to talk to you when you're dealing with that and you're like, I can't hear you, but, you know, or it's harder for me to concentrate on what they're saying. So I try to isolate myself and just breathe deeply and just take some time to meditate. What about that insomnia problem? Talk about that, because that's got to be combined with this uh, tinnitus, uh, quite a tandem, I would think, that can really work on the psychology of a soldier. This sound that you you know is there, but no one else does, and you have to deal with it psychologically uh, forever, or at least for a long time, but throw on that the overlay of not sleeping or having difficulty sleeping, and you can really get into some serious disorders, Jonathan. You can, um, you know, and the insomnia is just something that I, you know, I suffered with for years, and you know, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to treat it more like a deployment. Thankfully, I did, it's not that I never had anything to do. I've always had something to do, uh, so I've I've read a lot. Um, you know, I um, I think it's beneficial not to watch TV and use that as a distraction. So I, I always use my insomnia as productive time. Uh, but yeah, it it'd, you know, be three or four in the morning, and I was still studying for law school or still reading or working and you know and you go to sleep for two or three hours and then wake up and it's just time to start the day again it can be extremely frustrating it is extremely lonely there's not many people that are still up at that time you know i I found myself often using um, you know social media at one point was very distracting you'd be wondering why people are not posting something new at two or three in the morning and i realized like and you're getting anxiety about that and you know and of course at that point, I'd be like, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to delete all of my social media. There's no point in this. It's a distraction. And using that time just to be productive. Um, and, you know, that helped. But I also know guys who don't, uh, you know, guys who are suffering with insomnia, who, you know, can't sleep at night um, and uh, and who, you know, it's a, it's a time where they spend too much time thinking and they're battling, it, you know, battling with themselves. And that's definitely got to be tough. Yeah, and it's tough if you try to medicate it, too, um, because then you get into real problems. There are four letters that describe a condition that includes a lot of what we've been talking about, Jonathan. Tell us about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Folks have heard this term. They've heard the letters. But until I saw what you wrote, I had no idea myself. And I've been around soldiers a lot. It really helped me understand. Walk folks through this, Jonathan. You know, PTSD, you know, I think that it's one of the most diagnosed um, um, things that are out there it has a lot of negative connotations yep. uh, but but PTSD is something that that so many people go through uh, you know if you have a um, you know people who 
you know, or victims of sexual assault, people who are victims of, of just seeing something that, you know, they shouldn't have or that, that is just a highly traumatic event. And, and they, they go through it. Uh, when you experience those as a, as a veteran, a lot of times there's a lot more negative connotations about it. Um, you know, you have a lot of people who are also, because of those negative connotations, are not even going to get help. Um, I know a lot of veterans who, you know, refuse to get help because they're like, well, if I, if I get diagnosed with PTSD, that could potentially cost me my job if it's a security job or if it's a job that requires them to carry a weapon. Um, some of them also, you know, who are receiving disability for PTSD, which is, you know, in some cases extremely valid, um, they're afraid that the, you know, that they may lose their rights to carry a weapon. I have heard stories of that happening, uh, and I can see where the, you know, ATF could deny someone the ability of doing that if they're um, committed to a mental institution against their will. But often that's not true, and it's a, you know, I think a lot of these Marines out there or veterans out there need to get help, and are often um, just afraid of losing a right like that, which I do not believe they will, but they're afraid to, and so they, therefore they don't get the help they truly need. Yeah, and I also think that, look, it's no accident that a lot of the folks drawn to the military have a sense of uh, testosterone, machismo, and it's also an admission that you need help. And look, we know from the greatest generation, my goodness, you had guys coming back from World War II who never told anybody anything. And they, they suffered from not being able to share and get treated. Um, we did a, an hour on Major Dick Winters, and he was telling a story about how in his 70s, he was simply walking by a house, and a kid was running his hands through a white wooden fence, and it made a racket, and he instantly hit the ground, his heart raced, and he was back uh, in Bastogne all over again, and it never went away 40 years later. Um, so talk about that. Also, what was interesting in your piece is that it turns out PTSD is one highly treatable, but moreover, the RAND Corporation determined that only 34% of patients newly diagnosed with PTSD received minimally appropriate care following the diagnosis. That's crazy. Absolutely, it is. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, how how do oh, I think we're still treating it? You know, you can go to the VA if you can get an appointment. If I'll caveat it with that, um, but two, you can go to a psychologist out in town, and, and you know, and are they capable of actually understanding or, or dealing with what you're dealing with? Right. You know, I, I've actually uh, talked to a psychologist before, and and uh, had gone to talk to him about uh, you know something completely different, just you know as a just a checkup, and started talking to him about the war, and and literally, and he buckled up and kind of you know, got very defensive and said, we're not here to talk about that. And, uh, and literally he had not dealt with it. And I mean, this guy is a, is a, is a psychologist and just said, you know, we're, this is the scope of what we're talking about. And, uh, and that's outside of it. We're not doing that anymore. And, um, and, and to the point of, I kind of thought he was joking and I kept going and he dropped the F bomb on me and said, we're not effing talking about it. And I was just like, well, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and some people just have it. Um, and I don't always think that psychologists are the best people to talk to him about it. I think that a lot of it's just, you know, uh, you could get more from, um, you know, joining a Marine Corps League or veteran service organization and talking to them, uh, you know, people who've been through the same thing because they're, they are going to understand and understanding that, you know, it, you know, a, a psychologist is not always going to be the one who's going to talk to you about, Hey man, here's the reason that, your body's doing this. Uh, some are great, uh, but they are not all created equal either. And a veteran who's who's been through it and whose body suffered through it, you know, they're going to be able to tell you uh, if if they'll relate to you, you know, what what they've gone through and, and maybe help you through it. And I think uh, one of the things that's not there for this round of soldiers, my dad always told me because he didn't serve in Korea, he just missed it, but he was in the Air Force. But he said that VFW and those halls filled with those men 
That that was their that was their counseling center, and there were so many survivors of World War II in the Korean War that when these guys gathered in VFW halls, they were able to share with one another in ways. Let's face it, civilians just didn't understand. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jonathan McConnell. His piece in the Federalist: A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life caught our attention. We knew. You wanted to hear his story. We were sure of it. And when we come back, you'll hear the last segment in this hour-long story of Jonathan McConnell and his life in combat and then out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our last segment in an hour-long conversation with Jonathan McConnell. And Jonathan, for veterans who have found help for PTSD, there are persistent challenges of what many call grief or survivor's guilt. And those are two reasons why many veterans have trouble empathizing with civilians. Tell us more about that, because I don't think civilians can possibly understand this thing. You know, it's one of those things that I suffered with for years. Um, you know, like when it came to to living, you know, living life and, and, and you know, being up late at night or, you know, saying like, hey, I have an opportunity to live right now, but, but these Marines did not, you know, and especially ones that, you know, that you knew that were under your command and you're just like, hey, I'm doing this for Cliff or I'm doing this for Josh, you know, the, the ones who are out there, um, you know, you, you just feel guilty for still being alive. And, um, you know, I know one of the hardest moments that I ever had um, was stepping off that bus when I came home. I, I wasn't, I mean, I loved that my family was there and it meant a lot to me, but the whole time it was, you know, the the stress of having to meet the mother of one of my Marines who didn't come home and, and hand her his dog tags. And, you know, she was the most gracious woman in the entire world and, and gave us all big hugs and, and uh, was very, very sweet. And to this day, we stay in contact with her. We annually... We started doing a, a retreat um, with where everybody uh, spends a weekend together, and she always comes and is basically she lost one son, but she gained another sixty, um, and and that's how she looks at it. And she's she leads us uh, and is you know is more beneficial to us than we are to her. I'm sure of it. But you know that survivor's guilt is still there, and and it would be years that I would you know just be sitting there and just break down and just you know wondering why why did I make it, but you know he did not. And um, and that's something that you know we think about constantly, and it's just it, it, you can't explain it. Um, you know, I'm I'm convinced that um, you know I, I'm a believer. I you know I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian most of my life, and I, I still have not found where God's role is in war. And you cannot explain some things that happen, and you just have to trust that hey, there's a reason I'm still alive. But to me, I use it as an opportunity just to, to work harder and to to be better and, and live the life that He doesn't get to live. 
I'm going to live it in this place, and I'm going to work harder and be successful in this place. Yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about a lack of faith or the rise of atheism in the in, in the 21st century, but people don't understand that right after World War II, this was when the greatest rise of atheism occurred, because so many people, what a colossal collision with your faith. Why would a just God uh, allow 60 million people to die in a conflagration, uh, in death camps, uh, to nuclear annihilation, to 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 flamethrowers um these are things that challenge any decent person's faith uh jonathan talk about that because you saw some things and and, and probably felt some things about human beings that you just didn't think you were capable of you do i mean well let's look at the marine corps in general let's look at the the fruits of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness self-control i mean where does the Marine Corps fall on any of those? You know, patience, tactical patience, maybe self-control. Yeah, I'll give us that. We're good at that. Love, joy. Um, I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, where do you find God in the Marine Corps? You know, uh, in it is definitely a, a very uh, most of the people in there are godly people, but it is very hard to understand the role of you know Christianity or or whatever your God is in um, in the core. But then you exacerbate that with war. And seeing what you see when you see children who were killed, um, you know when you when you see some of the death and some of the destruction and, and the suffering, um, you know the sounds of war, you, you know, or just the instruments of war, you know these roadside bombs or you know a one five five shell that's exploded. When people pick up the piece of metal that I still have, you know, and I you know show it to them, and they're like, "This is such heavy metal." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, like so is the explosion that goes with it." It's, a, it's an explosion that you've never felt before. The, the military-grade explosives that reverberate through your body, it's, it's no small thing. And, and, you know, where is God in that? I don't know. It was years before I talked to God. Um, you know, I, uh, after losing one of my Marines, I, I did not talk to God for several years because I was so angry uh, that, you know, he took him and not me. And, you know, and it's finally, you know, my fight with God finally ended, and I realized it was going to be okay, and this was m- me, my doing, not his. And uh, but it's something that that I'm sure there's so many people that go out there and deal with. And, and I remember what finally got it for me was just realizing, like, hey, I'm either not going to go forward with life anymore or, you know, or I'm going to finally talk to God and, and forgive myself and, you know, and forgive God, even though he didn't need to be forgiven. But literally laid prostrate on the ground and prayed and just for the first time in years. And because, you know, at that point, it reached a point where it was either that or or the other way. So. Yeah, and I think this explains suicide for some people. I mean, here you are talking to us the way you're talking about, that you were looking at a fork in the road, the literal to be or not to be, Jonathan. I mean, that's where you were. Yep, absolutely. And let's, let me read something here that I think is a follow-up. You wrote, wrote in this, to the families and friends of veterans, my advice is to shut up and listen. Importantly, don't ask questions you can't accept an answer to. If you ask what the worst experience a veteran had was, which is not a question I advise asking, don't gasp and look at us like we just kicked a puppy. It's war. It's hell. It happens. Don't damn us to live it in perpetuity. Talk about that. You know, I've been asked numerous times, you know, about the war, and it's, you know, we're not a, we're not a toy. You don't sit there and put us on the ground and press play. And so many times that would happen. And, um, you know, and whether it was a, a family get-together and someone asked, you know, hey, what was the best thing about being in Iraq? And I just kind of looked at him, and, you know, and I was still dealing with the death of a Marine. And 
just like, what the hell do you think was the best thing about being in Iraq? I don't know. Like, I got toilet paper. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, the days that that a mail would come and we would get wet wipes. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You got to take a bath in. Um, and, and so that was something that, you know, we struggled with. And then some people, you know, for some odd reason, the first question they would ask is, did you lose any of your Marines or did you, did you ever have to kill anyone? And, you know, and, and often you would just say, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, you just tell them one of the worst stories you could come up with uh, that you remembered. And then at that point they would look at you like you just kicked a puppy or that you, you know, clubbed a seal right in front of them. You're like, well, hey, you asked. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, the times that I've ever opened up to talk about it voluntarily is usually it's on my terms. You know, if you're just hanging out with people that you love, that know are going to love you regardless of what you tell them um, and how atrocious it is or whatever, and you tell them about it and you hope that they don't look at you and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. Um, and then you just say, you, you know, you, the response you want is like, hey, thanks for telling me that. I know that was tough to deal with. Not, um, I, we don't need people to tell us how horrible it was. We know. We live with it every day. Um, you know, but just um, instead of responding and saying, like, that's awful. How did y'all do that? Or how could y'all do that? If you understood the scenario that that evolved around it, it's it's not easy. Yep. And 18 Marines from your battalion were killed in action in Iraq. 18. But suicide has prematurely claimed almost half that number since returning home, Jonathan. That I found extraordinary. So you lost nine of your comrades to self-inflicted injuries and death. This has to be as painful or in some ways more painful than the 18. And I don't want to weigh the balance because it's all painful, Jonathan. But to know that they came home and survived and then couldn't make it. My goodness, what a thing to weigh on all of you. Well, Lee, yeah. And so go to one of those funerals with us, you know, and and I'll just take you through it, you know, through a story. But, you know, the last funeral I went to uh, was last summer and with one of the Marines who had um, who had essentially drank himself to death. You know, you look around at the maybe 40 of us that went to that funeral, and you're like, okay, well, who are the survivors still? You know, we're all still survivors, and who are going to make it, or who's next? You know, and you look around, and you're like, you know, I can picture those three as being next, or or how's this person doing? And it's a great opportunity for us to kind of check ourselves and to reach out to each other, and you know it's beneficial. And But there are some of the guys there that you're like, I won't be surprised if within the next year I get a phone call that that he was the one who was next. And, you know, and so we try to reach out to those guys and we try to get ways to get them to come to our reunion and, and to talk to people. But, but some know that's what we're doing, and so they, they keep us at an arm's distance. You know, it's a struggle that we fight every day. I can tell you that I've, I'm in a great spot, haven't been in a better spot, I don't think, before in my life right now. Just happiness, especially with a little boy coming and, and being married, you know, love life. Uh, but I'm looking at some of the other Marines who are just really struggling right now. And, um, you know, and, and we try to check in with them, but... It's just tough. And what's an answer policy-wise? You're talking to the President of the United States right now, where you got all the congressmen, and they're going to do whatever you tell them. What's one thing you tell them to do for the, for the boys, for your com- boys and girls, the comrades in arms in Iraq and Afghanistan? What's the one thing you tell them to do? Besides resign? Uh, just kidding. No, uh, <laughs> uh, I was just good opportunity for term limits there in Congress. Yep. But, yep. Um, you know, I, I'd say, if anything, come up with the voucher program that allows them to um, to – to get the care they need. Even the VA admits that they're broken. You know, you, they, instead of calling the 1-800 number or instead of calling, you know, whatever the standard number is, the, the VA hospital that, you know, that, that I've, the ones that I've been to gives you a separate number that is a direct line to them because they know that, hey, don't get co- caught in the phone system, the federal system, because it's going to, you'll never get through to us. Here's a number you can call. And 
but you don't ever get access to that till you get in, until you get that first appointment or even to the appropriate appointment. And so these these guys aren't getting help. And so getting them a, a voucher to where they can go to the hospital or a, a psychiatrist that's you know five miles away as opposed to fifty or seventy miles away. Uh, I think that would be a, an easy prescription that's that's fixable much quicker. Yeah, and a choice system. If anybody deserves choice, it's our it's our combat veterans. Uh, period. And I think Americans would rally around that. Jonathan McConnell, his article in the Federalist, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan now is the president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. Still doing some pretty dangerous stuff, but married, expecting a boy, and moving on and living just a great life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me. This is Our American Stories, and this week is National Infertility Awareness Week. And it's an especially important week, as many of us don't realize all the folks in our lives and around the country who are struggling with infertility, as it's something that many quietly endure and often feel isolated from what seems like a world of fertile people all around them. But it's something that many more people experience than you likely realize. 15% of the population is struggling with infertility at any one time, almost one out of six people. And throughout the week, we'll be bringing you stories that have moved us. The first one today is from a husband and wife video blogging duo named Ellie and Jared, who brought their followers along with them throughout their journey of years of infertility. Let's take a listen to a portion of one of Ellie and Jared's episodes. I work at a salon, and so I talk with people all day, every day, and the question always comes up, do you have kids? Do you want kids? And so it's been a good thing and it's been a bad thing. It's been a great thing because I have met a lot of people that that have helped answer questions that they have gone through and I don't have many people in my family that have issues with this. So it's nice to find friends and to find people that have experiences like this that I can connect with. So that's been a great experience. You know, the bad side of it is it really hurts. I don't think people realize how hard it hurts to talk about and it really affects you when you talk about it every day and you can't have kids and you want kids so bad that, you know, you would give an arm and a leg and... Sometimes um, in those situations we feel like people take for granted what they do have when when people are struggling so bad to have what exactly what they do have and I feel like my eyes have been opened I feel like maybe maybe it's a blessing that it has taken a while to get a baby here because I feel like I am going to be that much better of a mom and I feel like we are going to be such good parents because of the experience that we've had and I feel like because my eyes have been opened I am more aware and I am going to be more patient with my kids and I'm going to be more loving. We have had many prayers at nights to have a baby sent our way and you know, I can't wait for the day that I'm throwing up because <laughs> because I'm really going to just 
say a prayer that, you know, at least we can get a baby here. You know, how grateful is going to be the day that Ellie has morning sickness because <laughs> she's going she's gonna to be pregnant. Yeah, and we she's... want that. And you can hear that joy in their voice. And now a second story. And by the way, not all of these stories have picture-perfect endings. As Tara Cummins told us in her story of infertility, there are just different endings and different lives. By the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and catch Tara's story. It's so compelling. And this next story is from another video blogger named Ayla, and she's still struggling with infertility. Here's a portion of one of Ayla's episodes. So recently um, I have found out that someone very close to me um, is expecting and this will be her second time expecting a baby um, during the time that we've been trying to conceive. And so I wanted to kind of touch base on some of the, I guess, emotions that surround that. And I feel like some of you guys could probably relate to this sort of thing. And, you know, it comes up often, I find, in my life and in probably your guys' lives. But it's like that conflicting battle between um being happy and being sad about news like this like for example like facebook like sometimes i have to go weeks without being on facebook because it's a little overwhelming when you see pregnancy announcements and when you see people who are pregnant you know talking about their pregnancy and you know gender reveals and baby showers and things like that and that's even more so relevant on this YouTube community. I'm constantly seeing things like that, like um, different videos that are videos that I've dreamed of making for myself. And it's such a hard like battle, I find, because in this case, with um, this recent news, you know, my first instinct is to try not to cry because I'm upset and it's silly. Like it really is silly because we're separate. We have separate lives. She is, you know, her own family. She has her own family and I have my own. And, you know, just because she's getting pregnant and having a baby doesn't mean that it will never happen to me. And it doesn't mean anything negative, but it's that like that feeling that, you know, it's just like a, a plain reminder to you that it's not you and that you don't know when it will be you or if it will be you. Very um, difficult to deal with, I think, because you want to be happy. Like, I want more than anything to be strong and to be there for her every step of the way and to hold my head high at the baby shower and to, you know, listen to other people's comments about how excited they are and genuinely agree and feel excited. And... Part, a big part of me is, and a big part of me will, but then there's always that part of me that's going to be jealous. I'll just come straight out and say it. I get jealous, and I get jealous because it's something that I've always dreamed of and always wanted. I've work, been working so, so hard for, and it's selfish. It's absolutely selfish of me to be jealous of someone else's happiness, but I can't help it sometimes, and it sucks. It really sucks. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be thinking that way or acting that way. Um, but I think it's just the reality of it. And so we heard from Ayla. And my goodness, it's a plain reminder that it's not you. That's what she said when she thought about every time she saw someone on a Facebook page post of a happy pregnancy or a baby shower. 
It's a plain reminder that it's not you. We also heard from Ellie and Jared. National Infertility Awareness Week. It's important that we talk about this. It hits one out of six people in this country. People struggling to have babies and not being able to. This is Our American Stories. We want to hear your stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Send them to us and we'll tell them. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. Slava Rostropovich died on This Day in History in 2007, and so our own Alex Cortez is bringing us this American Dreamers story on a classical musician he recently read about in Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life. Mistiflav Slava Rostropovich is his name. Let's take a listen. Slava. Russian word for glory. Glory for his music and glory for his story. One of the great conductors. He always tells me, you know, not everything is important. Uh, if you put everything, it gives importance to the public, then they will slowly, uh, you know, be tired. And then but sometimes you have to let them go and let them be in their thoughts and get them relaxed and then stress the material that you really want to stress. One of the great cellists. Julian Lloyd Webber said he's the greatest ever. Here's one of the other all-time greats, Yo-Yo Ma, reflecting on being a 15-year-old listening to a 1961 recording of Slava's. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. I think 
think it was the combination of energy and to a a player, a cellist, a fellow cellist, the impossibility of what he was doing on the instrument. Beyond physical ability, there was a kind of willpower that was so grand, and it is overwhelming. You know, this it's kind of a a reality distortion. You enter into that、uh, his sound world, or you see him in person, and something happens, and you fall under the spell. Here's Slava on how he casts that spell. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagine this sound before I make a beat. He's a funny guy, Flava, because he was he was physically very awkward, and he himself used to say, "You know, I real ugly guy." <laughs> But his hands were the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. They were long, they were wide, they were gorgeous. There was something that a painter might have might have painted,、uh, and anything that had to do with his hands was gorgeous. A fellow Russian cellist said that these hands made the cello look and sound like a completely new instrument. Slava's innovations and technique in one lifetime by one man are equal to all of humanity's over several centuries. My mother, как сказать, держала меня в животе десять месяцев. Carried me for ten months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? And mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. When Slava was 21 years old, he dropped out of university. He wasn't failing. He wasn't partying too much or pursuing some great business idea. He was pursuing freedom, artistic freedom, in a country without. The Soviet regime forced his teacher Dmitri Shostakovich to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime. Producing music too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their brand of socialist realism. Their official statement declared that Tolstokovich had anti-democratic tendencies, alien to the Soviet people. So, in protest and in solidarity, Slava left too. He was a nobody then, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention. But he soon would, as a professional cellist, and later as a conductor. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms—he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music—and I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Just two years later, at the age of 23, the Soviets awarded him with their Stalin Prize for his mastery of the instrument. And would later receive their highest distinction in all of the land, being named the People's Artist of the Soviet Union. He was a public figure now, and this would be a problem. 
in this moment, government come back and just close my mouth and tell, no, please not express something new. Slava's first expression as a public figure wasn't vocal at all. It was musical. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's Cello Concerto in B minor, and Slava decided to perform it in London. But not just on any day. On the same day the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks. 72 people would die. As for Slava, to make sure his audience knew exactly what he was doing. After his performance, he stood up. And proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score as a message of solidarity. And he wasn't finished. As an encore, he played a solemn Bach piece that he said he'd like to offer to those who were mourning. Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled. And this was nothing compared to what Slava would do next. And when we come back, more of this great story. This is our American stories. And by the way, our music stories are all over our website, and that's at ouramericannetwork.org. And this is the power of music. Uh, In the end, it's to move people and move nations. And it has tremendous, and it has always had, tremendous political power as well. Again, it's why dictators always, always want to control the artists and the storytellers. It's because in the end, those are the people who move a nation. And we saw it in Hitler's, in Hitler's Third Reich, how he commissioned the great artist to celebrate himself and punished any artist who wouldn't put himself at the center of all the art and all the work. And if you can, one of our favorite stories was the Armando Valladares story. And if you recall, if you didn't hear it, and again, go to ouramericannetwork.org, Armando Valladares. He was a poet and dissident in Cuba. And he went to prison because he wouldn't essentially say that Fidel Castro was his God. He had a different God. And he simply wasn't going to renounce his faith. And he went into a prison camp and stayed there a very long time and wrote poetry in his own blood on the skin of an onion. And ultimately, and fairly recently, the Beckett Fund awarded him the Canterbury Medal and Prize. And that's always for religious freedom. And so very often the artist, the poet, the musician, and my goodness, I think some people would even call Martin Luther King an artist. I know Bono felt that way enough so to write his favorite song about Martin Luther King in the name of love, pride. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on the life of Slava Rostropovich. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We now return to Our American Dreamers feature, our Mistislav Slava Rostropovich. He died on this day in history in 2007. When we left off, Slava received the Soviet Union's highest honor, the People's Artists of the Soviet Union, for his mastery of the cello, a distinction that became problematic because it gave him fame. Fame that put a spotlight on him and a spotlight on his fierce belief in artistic freedom in a country without it. Let's return to Alex's story to hear what Slava does next. an open letter to the state-run newspaper Pravda, directly attacking the state censorship of art. Explain to me, please, why in our literature and art, so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word. There's the burn, and then came the meat of his message. Every man must have the right, fearlessly, to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows, what he has personally thought about and experienced, and not merely express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. Let's just say they didn't run that letter. And this was all before Slava found this partner in crime. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. Here's Slava on this troublemaker. He was one of the greatest Russian writers. Yeah. Second Tolstoy, second Dostoevsky. Yeah. His name? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. who was even more controversial than he was. And a friend without a home. Solzhenitsyn had served eight years in a labor camp for privately criticizing Stalin and then was sent into exile for life. His fortunes turned around when the next Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, exonerated him and even authorized his book exposing Stalin's prison labor system. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. moment it hit the streets, it was gone in an instant. But then Khrushchev was removed, and along with it, any semblance of hope that Solzhenitsyn could publish future works. The Soviets declared him a non-person, and after they stole one of his manuscripts, he went into hiding. In 1970, Slava took him in, saying, he was my friend, he had no place to go. That same year, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, but he could not personally receive it in Stockholm. He feared that he would not be let back into his home country. He was one of the only people willing to speak out, and speak out at the risk of his own life. In 1971, the KGB attempted to assassinate him with a biological agent, and they failed. And then in 1973 came his most famous work, a comprehensive look at the Russian prison system, the Gulag Archipelago. 
and it was the final straw. Solzhenitsyn banished from the Soviet Union. And Slava hosting Solzhenitsyn was the Soviet's last straw for him, too. Cancel my, my tour in the West. In May 74, I drove out from Russia. Alone, without my family. Why? Because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. I will not utter one single lie in order to return, he said at the time. I would never see Russia and my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this. Four years later, they formally stripped Slava of his citizenship. He was wounded very deeply and stood up to it. Here Slava is speaking through a translator. Both myself and all my family remain Soviet citizens. And I'd also like to say that I love very deeply and very sincerely my country and my people. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult as a human being to suffer and not to be able to return to his homeland. And I think that made his art only more richer. I was born anew, Slava said at the time. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All the composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more to me. And in 1977, Slava found his new place in the world, a place whose language he didn't know, Washington, D.C., as a celebrated music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Before the break, I want to read a little bit from Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life where Alex first read about Slava Rostropovich. In 1982, as Amway was preparing to enter the European market, they decided to sponsor Slava's month-long tour of the continent with the National Symphony, Symphony Orchestra. And here's what Jay wrote about Slava and why they did it. Quote, Only in a free society can artistic talent like Slava's come to fruition and enrich the lives of each individual. A free enterprise economy can generate such that people can afford to buy the work of actors, artists, musicians. Talented people who cannot find enough buyers for their work will find in a free economy philanthropically-minded individuals to support their work. Socialism keeps everyone, except the political elites, at such a low standard of living that they cannot afford to support artists. By supporting the National Symphony Orchestra, Amway was acting in its role as an ambassador for free enterprise. 
We hope that everyone who sat in a European auditorium to hear the orchestra noted two things. First, Slava, an example of a man once oppressed by statism and now set free to use his abilities to the fullest. Second, funds made possible by the American free enterprise system working to promote those culture of events that make human existence more enjoyable. Mission accomplished. Amway has more than 250,000 distributors in Europe today. Spinning this virtual cycle of free enterprise all over again. And when we come back, the final chapter in this story of the life of Slava Rostropovich here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of Our American Dreamers feature, Mistavlov Slava Rostropovich, Russian cellist and conductor who was banished from the Soviet Union for standing up for artistic freedom and freedom writ large. First, the freedom of his professors, then that of the Czech people, his own, and finally his dear friend, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When we left off, Slava found freedom in the United States of America, an artistic freedom as the musical director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. We probably could play the loudest of any orchestra and the softest of any orchestra. And this was what Slava demanded of us. He also demanded, everyone loosen up. He sometimes surprised his colleagues by pasting centerfolds from men's magazines into the pages of their scores. His mischievous sense of humor cut through the sobriety of the concert atmosphere. I think the most intimidating thing was in a rehearsal. And he would stop the entire orchestra and he would point to an individual player. Like to me, he's done this to me, I'm sure he did it to you. He would stop and he would say... This finger ain't no good. And he would show you on his arm, second finger much better. And you would think, oh my gosh, he's right. And so you pick up your pencil and you write a second finger over that F because you had played it with a first finger and it didn't work. And he had seen it and he had stopped the whole orchestra. And this is so embarrassing. And then he would back up four measures and we would play it again. And he would stare at you to see if you used the fingering that he told you to use. I've met probably 
10,000 or 15,000 people who claim to be students of Slava. I mean, I, I sometimes had the feeling that if they were in the same room with him, they became a, a student. He was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating. Devastating. Frederiky, when you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky 6, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork in brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, got the point across. And immediately it was there. Like one time he, he said he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington DC would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He, 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 he was maybe over the top. But he got his point across. And ultimately, the, the musical impact was there. The hometown newspaper, The Washington Post, wrote, Rostropovich the man was as warm and generous as his artistry. It was not unusual for him to leap from the conductor's podium after a particularly satisfying interpretation and hug and kiss every musician within reach. He was shameless and an irrepressible flirt and a connoisseur of fine wine and drink, a man who gulped vodka in much the same way and with much the same enthusiasm that a professional athlete might gulp Gator. And he was good copy for anyone who wanted to write about him. And so Time Magazine did, putting Rostropovitz on its cover, calling him the Magnificent Maestro. Slava lived more in one day than I live in 10 years. During his years of exile, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people. It's not the rotten government. And so when new Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev pursued democratic reforms, Slava was there to welcome him, joining President Ronald Reagan at a White House meeting in 1987. And then in 1989, this happened. Hi, Peter Jennings in New York. Just a short while ago, astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. As quickly as he could, Slava flew to Berlin, cello in hand, and played an impromptu concert at the scene. Slava chose one of Bach's solo suites, a work he said that at the age of 70, he had taken up for the first time because I now had balance at my disposal for the first time. Maestro, why do you go so fast? You are, uh, you're not a young man anymore, but uh, I want you to be healthy. But, but you still travel enormously, and even more now. I say, that's right. Even more now, because like a sportsman who runs a marathon, in the end, 
I have to run faster. Only a few months later, Slava's citizenship was restored. And he wasted no time. The very next month, he took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. I think bringing an American orchestra playing their music, Russia, Kofia, Tchaikovsky, and Shostakovich bringing their music over and playing it with his interpretation with an American orchestra, that's a big deal. Even the rehearsals in Moscow leading up to the concert were a big deal for Slava and especially for the Russian people. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street and he was walking down the street and it's like 5 o'clock in the morning and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow because it was the middle of winter. And she stopped and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that we were there, that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed an audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, it's just these benches, like I'm sitting on here, these hard benches. And maybe there's supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines and they had all paid their five rubles and they were going to see this if it was the last thing and you just looked at them and you saw how desperate they were and you realized he wasn't kidding it really was like life and death to them and, and they brought these flowers bouquets of flowers and they come up to the podium afterwards and they put these flowers and it was like somebody died there was this mountain of flowers on the podium after the concert For his final encore, Slava chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, the traditional finale of the National Symphony's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience, you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. Mistivlav, Slava, Rostropovich, forever a Russian, forever an American dreamer. And what a great piece. And Greg, as always, does such a great job, Alex, bringing it home. And what were a couple of things? I know when you're doing a piece like this, Alex, there's always something you you wanted to put in, you didn't put in. One or two things? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you could hear his friendship with Solzhenitsyn. And one of the, when he visited the Berlin Wall, he said, we should really build a statue here to this man. It just wasn't me. It was Solzhenitsyn. And then in 1993, during the siege of the Russian White House, which many people remember, they're achieving democratic reforms and those communist hardliners are fighting back. Slava happened to be in in Russia touring again with the National Symphony, and he planned to give a free concert in Red Square. And it was originally just planned as a gesture to music lovers who couldn't fit in those smaller indoor concerts. But because of what was going on, 
there was 100,000 people there at that concert. And to see a classical music yeah. concert. And Slava said of it, Russians need to be reminded that at times like this, they are great people. Events disrupt, disrupt things a, a little sometimes, but listening to this music is a reminder that there's a great nation here. Well, what a great story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org, grab this, share it with friends, by the way. You know, as we're hearing a lot about what folks think about America and the American flag, I always love asking immigrants what they think. Russians, Ethiopians, Nigerians, uh, from all over the world. We heard Frank Capra, of course, on July 4th and what he thought, Italian immigrants. And you don't hear much, well, let's just say there's not a lot of protest theology around those folks because they've lived somewhere else and they know what it's like to live under dictatorial powers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I don't know what to say. Slava. That's it. His life story. And I just love that kind of storytelling. Thanks so much, guys, for all you do. And gals, because Faith has joined our team. More after these messages.